What makes the country great is you're free to pursue whatever it is and whatever lifestyle you want, limited by your own imagination and your own dreams, but it's that imagination which is shaped by your culture. Luis Hernandez Jr. is the CEO of Avid Technology, a company that makes tools for editing video and audio and writing music. Avid is facing hard times as rival Adobe grows stronger with Premiere and other Creative Suite tools and as more software moves to the cloud. Hernandez, though, is unique for a lot of reasons. One of them is that he's the Latino CEO of a publicly traded technology company. He recently wrote a book, The Storyteller's Dilemma, about the way technology is changing the media market. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to do that, but there are all kinds of great ways. Mainly what I want you to do, subscribe, so this gets to you automatically. One less thing to think about. Lewis talked to me about his path to the C-suite, his vision for the future of storytelling, and the factors that made his story so different from many of his cousins in the L.A. area where he grew up. Here's Lewis Hernandez, Jr. I grew up in Claremont, California, down okay. in uh, southern near L.A., and uh-huh. some people don't know it, but if, you're, if you know the Claremont Colleges... Yeah, lots of colleges, right? exactly. Yeah, my parents were my both educators. My cousins, yeah, cousins okay. were around there, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's one of those places, you, you know, like any place you grow up, you can't wait to get out of, and it really ruined my street creed to have my kids go back and see what a nice, pleasant town it is. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful town, an a idyllic town. Um, but I didn't know that at the time, so I couldn't wait to get out of there and went to school at San Diego State. Now, why and, at the time could you not wait to get out of Claremont? Well, I think it's just the youthful, you know, independence. I wanted to get out of wherever I was, where <laughs> my parents and family, et cetera, was. I right. was an ambitious guy. My father taught computer science. Hmm. I had been programming and architecting um, since I was young. Uh-huh. Um, one of my favorite days was uh, uh, Sundays because that's the time the lab was open and I could miss church only if I had a project to work on. So, of course, my dad made sure I always had a program to work on. And uh, my education's in economics and finance. Um, I'm a CPA. I worked at Price Waterhouse, which depresses people because I'm mostly known as an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> But I really started marrying the two, my joy and love for technology before it was popular like it is. I know you're from Silicon Valley. Back then, when I was a kid, you didn't really talk about the fact that I was the only computer science tutor for my high school or these things because nobody, there was no, there's no, you know, cool factor to that. You could talk about it while you played Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) Right, exactly. So uh, luckily I played athletics. I was an athlete, so that that helped uh, at least me appear socially normal. Uh, Anyway, so I grew up in Southern California, heavy influenced by my parents, also a Latin family. You know, that means heavy immigrant mentality. You're never supposed to uh, not be grateful for everything or ever complain. And um, so they were, we were immigrant, we were Latin, you know, uh, and educational family. So I tell people I had the worst of all worlds. Um, <laughs> and so uh, doing what I do now is really a passion of mine that was born out of there. I love uh, committing to communities. Um, I like finding ways to connect people through digital technologies because that's where my passion really is. And at Avid, the media industry has transitioned to a closer connection between this joy we all have around storytelling. And that's why I've been investing in and and operating media companies. Came first as a board member, Mm -hmm. uh, was chair 
um, or lead director for five years. And I was selling uh, a banking software company I had started to Fiserv, very successful company, over a billion dollar company we created. And uh, as I was leaving, the investors asked on the board, hey, would I consider taking over Avid, this great heritage business that needs to find a way to start growing and be more relevant. And that's when I joined uh, four years ago. Banking software is way different from creative tools. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> Might be the opposite. <laughs> right? it, it, what's funny is uh, some people ask, uh, you know, how do you get into the? I've, I've been in e-commerce banking and, and sports and media tech, all tech. Uh -huh. And they say, boy, it's so different. But for me, they're very similar mathematically because the reason I went into banking, I went from, from content management, um, had a non-compete, look for other industries where the connection between two people is all digital. And banking was one of the top where the relationship we have to move money between ourselves can be entirely digital. Mm -hmm. And that's really why I went into banking. I conceptualized a, a way to connect all banking relationships around the world because they're mostly broken down by charter, charter types or sovereign states and regulated. And I thought, why can't we have one? Because the, the, the basic relationship's the same. Somebody has excess, has excess capital, somebody needs it and we want to connect these two people. But because of the regulations and the sovereign state limitations, you have multiple vendors serving different markets. And I thought, why don't we have one that we all share and have apps by regulatory differences, language, currency, and product types. And it was called DNA. It was called, the company was called Open Solutions. The product was called DNA. I believe it's still the fastest growing platform in the world. It's owned by Fiserv and Jeff Yabuki there as the CEO is doing a great job with it. Mm. Very proud of what we created. Had a non-compete. Couldn't go back into banking, went back into media, and um, essentially trying to do the same thing, just bring communities together, this time through the joyous storytelling, which is how I started back in 1994, the first time I created software for, for the, the media industry. And what was that in 94? This was a, a content uh, distribution platform. We had a product called the Knowledge Store. Uh, you know, Luckily, it was in the dot-com era. It was my first startup. Yeah, 94, was, that's the year the web browser was born. Exactly. So. so we were early. We were converting files to digital formats when that wasn't heard of at the time, and people paid us a lot of money because they thought it was so complicated. Um, <clears throat> uh, we grew very, very rapidly, about $330 million in a few years, went public uh, in the 90s. Um, and so I got out in 2000 and uh, thought, boy, this startup stuff's pretty easy. I mean, you just have an idea, it grows, everybody <laughs> buys it, people give you a lot of money. And of course, I've never had anything as easy as that ever again. And Avid certainly has been a much more complicated story for us. But I think the opportunity is more significant because Avid started with this great brand and unbelievable distribution. And we can leverage that. And we are large enough that we can invest the 300 million or so we did in building this new platform. And we have the, uh, the brand identity to have people trust that it's going to work. And right. so it's been really taking off nicely. Our cloud business is really exploding on us. And the platform is doing extremely well because it's solving a problem and it's saving money. Talk to me about minorities in tech. Um, I remember doing a project back in it's probably 2000, 2001, mm -hmm. taking a look at the biggest public companies in Silicon Valley and the diversity or lack thereof in their workforces by job category. Just you know, looking at the EEO ones where I could get them. Some <laughs> companies tried to block me from getting them open records requests with the federal government. I got a decent amount of data. Things haven't changed that much. And at the time, the tale was, boy, the pipeline is really difficult. There aren't enough you know, black and Hispanic kids in particular uh, taking the computer science courses, having the prerequisites, getting into the field, the ones that do uh, and are going to 
the colleges that these companies recruit from, boy, everybody wants them. The banks want them, Silicon Valley wants them, the consulting firms want them, and, and you know, we, we only get a few. Yeah. How does it look from your perspective? What was your experience like making it to the level that you have uh, in the industry? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question because people, uh, you know, have obviously asked me about this topic quite a bit given that I'm a minority and grew up with a minority and immigrant family. And, you know, my, my mother had a big influence because um, she just was had all the attributes, I think, for success, whether or not you were minority or not. And that's what I grew up with. So it didn't, I didn't feel like I was overcoming anything, nor did I have an excuse. I mean, when you say all the attributes for success, what do you consider those to be? My mom worked very hard. Uh, extremely hard worker. Uh, education was, uh, she's a PhD. She was, she came to this country with, with a very little education. So she focused on education. It changed her life, created opportunities for her. She saw that as a key pillar, good education. Um, <clears throat> work hard, be grateful for what you have. Um, you know, family and community was important to her. She was an educator, so she not only was an educator, she believed in the community she participated in. I was a kid, I wouldn't have said that, but I can see now how involved she was. I mean, it wasn't just work for her, she really cared about it. And of course, probably less influential on me, but was uh, her religious background because she just pounded it into <laughs> to us. And it, it's not a commentary on religion. It's more about the sense of community and belonging to a larger group right. for a higher purpose that mattered. I'm not that religious today, but... Yeah, it sounds like you were trying to get out of church to go exactly. work on... Exactly, yeah. It. That, and, yeah. She, and she will tell you, <laughs> the reason for my success is because that was at God's hand. Believe me, she, <laughs> she'll take credit for that too. But uh, anyway, so she, I think it's, it's really those that, that helped me... Um, you know, drive, create the, the, the parameters for me and the guideposts for me to be successful. It was only later that I realized I was a minority when people started asking me, how did you overcome? Hmm. And I think one of the dilemmas I found is, as a See, person, that's interesting. Yeah. You, so you're growing up in the 80s, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. in, in Claremont. Uh, Latino kid who doesn't realize he's a minority. Mm -hmm. That's probably not the experience of most Latino kids, even in Claremont today what the environment's like, right? Well, it, it's, it, to, to, to echo your point is, and punctuate it, I was probably one of, I actually didn't realize this either, but I went back at my, uh, my automolar, automolar, uh, automolar, uh, I know it's, alamater, <laughs> you get tripped up on automolar, automolar, Claremont High School, where they're a huge ad, avid users hmm. and have won recently a whole bunch of awards. And I happen to go back to my, um, you know, my old yearbook, and I think I was one of three minorities in my class of 400. And wow. to echo the point, like it's minorities, like, not yeah, just Latinos. Yeah, like. so the interesting about your point, too, is on weekends, we would do like all, um, you know, minorities, I guess, or Latin, certainly, we would go to my grandmother's house, either in Anaheim or East L.A., for the weekend. That was a required, no social stuff. You go to the, your grandmother's house for the entire weekend, packed with a whole bunch of people. <laughs> my cousins there, half of them still mostly speak Spanish, uh -huh. and about half didn't go to school. Um, because that's more traditional being first generation. So to your point, I feel I was very lucky. And when, when people have asked me to help or get involved, um, it's really about trying to bridge the understanding of how it was for me on weekends um, when I was having Wonder Bread and peanut butter and jelly at my best friend Eugene's house. Mm. And then I would go on weekends and everything was very entrenched in the culture, from the food we ate to the music to the arguments to the language. And seeing the inherent limitations 
um, of some of those cultures where you, you put such an emphasis on your family above your own performance. And I think that's one great thing about my last book, by the way, Saving the American Dream, right. was really about what makes the country great is you're free to pursue whatever it is and whatever lifestyle you want, limited by your own imagination and your own dreams. But it's that imagination which is shaped by your culture and by where you grew up. And so I think my parents did me a great service in, in putting me in an environment where uh, my imagination could soar and it wasn't limited by the realities of, uh, of the socioeconomic environment that we were in. Mm -hmm. So again, give my parents a lot of, of credit for it. But when I talk to minorities today about why they're not more involved in STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, as I was, it was a big piece. Got lucky too. My dad happened to be a an engineer. Scientist. Yeah, he was yeah. an engineer. So uh, I had. I, I feel mean, yeah. like your dad's an engineer. Your mom's a PhD working in education, right? Yes. I mean, right there from the start, they say one of the the biggest predictors of academic success is parental education level. Yeah. It's, it's not necessarily, you know, A to B, it's directly correlated, um, but hey, it, it helps. And there you go, right? You've got a head start right off the bat. And if you think about my parents and my 13 aunts and uncle on my mom's side, that's just my mom's side, forget mm -hmm. about the five or six on my dad's side, it is completely a predictor because I'm sure I'm no more genetically uh, capable than any of my very bright and capable cousins, half of which are served their country or became officers, some of them been in jail and all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. and, Sounds and a lot that, like my family. My, my mom's got like 12 or 13 siblings, <laughs> I lose count. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's a big definitely predictor. And yeah. uh, you know, I had the joy of immersing myself in that culture, so I appreciate it, it's a big part of my life today but I also had an environment where I was free to dream unencumbered by the economic realities that, that were my reality. And that was, that was for my family. My, when my, parent, my dad you know, was in the Navy and the GI Bill helped him get an education. My mom had, was a dancer and had virtually no education when she came. And it was their desire to improve their lives that really drove more than anything. And I think luckily they were smart enough to put themselves and, my, and the family in a situation where we, our imagination could, could run wild about what was possible. Right. You have a foundation. What's the focus of that? Because it, it hits along these lines. Yep. A Little Hope Foundation is, is uh, it's, it's funny what happens to you along these journeys, right? So you, you never, I didn't expect to care as much as I do about underprivileged children. Why not? Uh, because you don't think about it when you're just trying to get, you know, achieve something. And, you know, at least for me, I'm 50 years old now. Um, you know, at, at first you're just so ambitious, blinded by the desire to do something that matters. Um, and luckily I was early on pretty successful and started building and building. And, and then one day you start thinking about, you know, uh, how do you stay relevant and how do you, how do you uh, make sure that there's more of us in the world to help contribute to advance the cause. What's that day for you? That really started, you know, I, I sold the second company, I was 33. Mm -hmm. And uh, first one, we were going to go public, and I was 29, and everybody thought my age was misprinted on the S1 <laughs> document. Luckily, we got sold. Second one was a startup in content. Huge success. Um, Sounds like you sold it just in time, 33. And I like got so lucky. 2000, early 2000? It was 2000. It was 2000, before the bust. <laughs> yeah. And then I went into banking, which was the antithesis of the dot-com yeah. at the time for me, enterprise software. So I felt like somebody was watching. I mean, it's just... Then when everything crashed, my industry wasn't crashing. Yeah. It, it was still going fine. 
Anyways, um, <clears throat> you yes. sold your house in 2006, and uh, <laughs> I wish I could say all that. Yeah, <laughs> your yeah. timing is yeah. just impeccable. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? There's no way I can spend all this money, you know. And so I should think about doing good work. And I got involved in politics, got involved in other not-for-profit activities. Mm -hmm. But I realized I was still too too much left to do. And that's when the idea became the foundation. But that's when I really started thinking about, so what do I care about? Yeah. You know, what do I want to influence? And I really wanted to go back to those same neighborhoods with those same folks I grew up on that didn't grow up in Claremont, the ones who grew up in Compton and East L.A. and Anaheim and Duarte, where my cousins all lived. I wanted to go back there. And that's what we did. So we started the foundation and, you know, tried to help kids on education, health care, and leadership capabilities. When I started thinking about what would have helped and, you know, I still have a lot of cousins there and family, so I can see it can still help. Mm -hmm. And then I became a global citizen. You know, Avid is in 160 countries now, and we're in every major market. And, and Open Solutions had 4,000 banks around the world. I was on the board of HSBC, which took me around the world also. And I realized, you know, I st again, coming of age, you start realizing this is a global problem. Yeah. And we should influence this globally. I'll tell you, one of the, one of the moments for me that made me do a double take on my worldview was visiting the United Arab Emirates for the first time, going to Abu Dhabi, the conference for Fortune magazine. And there, uh, you know, I was coming from, from Silicon Valley. There's a situation where the Emiratis kind of control the wealth. They get uh, basic living payments just for being born Emirati. And you've got a lot of Southeast Asian and South Asian immigrants coming into work who don't have the same level of civil status and aren't always treated that well. And, and so you've got kind of Indian and South Asian immigrant workers in the working class. And I'm thinking, this isn't how it is in Silicon Valley. In Silicon Valley, you've got highly educated immigrants yeah. from these same areas of the world having a totally different experience. You can't assume that everywhere is the same. <laughs> no, it's an excellent point. You're right. All, all kinds of Asians and uh, Filipinos there, and then and then the Indians. You know, all that area. By the way, we we're very avid. Is very dominant, and uh, I think very inspirational with Abu Dhabi Media, with Dubai mm. TV, with Saudi TV, with of course Al Jazeera and and BN Sports, OSN. We we're really strong in that region, and it's funny as you say because. The desire for stories that connect the social fabric is as strong there as anywhere in the world. And the issues, like you pointing out, it's just ironic, like you said, in Silicon Valley, it'd be a different group for a different reason, be very valued for a different reason. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's why I started the, the photography company, too. I mean, people think I'm a, an artist or something. I, I really just needed a way to capture these stories. I had no knowledge of photography. You know, I, I had a couple of friends who were professional, had them teach me on the first couple of shoots. We hired mm -hmm. 15, I funded 15 photographers, and we started going everywhere, every time I'd land a place, like Dubai, yeah, like Bangkok, like, a China, you know, a Beijing, like uh, Mexico City, like, um, you know, wherever it was in the world I was, if I was there over a weekend, I would take shoots on Sunday, almost always on Sundays. Huh. And I would just... When did uh, you start that? I started that 10, 15, uh, 14 years ago. Wow, okay, so shoot. long before you were CEO of Abbott. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in fact, the tour, last tour, is called Hope, Courage, Triumph, Stories of Everyday Heroes Among Us. And it's funny now that I'm at Avid. In fact, if in, in Storyteller's Dilemma, the opening starts with one of these exhibits that we had. 
Mm. And the power of a story I captured in Philippines, of all places, because the Filipinos are very big in, in uh, UAW, UAE. Mm-hmm. And um, I was actually walking near the port district, and there was a kid, bright light kid, in a window. And I took a picture of him because he's one of these cute, as a button kid looking out the window overlooking the street. Mm-hmm. And down below about a story were uh, plastic uh, tubes. Uh, this was a makeshift neighborhood of raw sewage coming out into a tributary. Uh, and I tried to follow that tributary, and there was a whole village down there that you couldn't see from the street, essentially of, of you know, uh, makeshift homes where these people lived. And we captured some fantastic stories. But that image of that kid was my bestseller. The reason I pointed out is we go to a place like New York, like we're here in San Francisco and Boston, and have these exhibitions where we, we're drinking fine champagne and, and uh, nibbling on you know uh, uh, high-end uh, appetizers, and the reaction we would get from these stories, it, it was it was so powerful, and yeah. it was just an image. So I opened this book talking about how if one image can do that. Now that I'm at Avid, because that happened to be before I was Avid, you can imagine the stories that we, we help uh, create through film and broadcast. It's no wonder they're so important to us, because this one story, people wanted to help this kid. They wanted to know more about him, all this stuff. Yeah. And, and it was just from a, a single still image. So, Lewis, why have we not gotten to a different place of kind of culture and power distribution in media. Because right now, you know, hold up this iPhone. It's got an HD camera in it, and it's got software built in that edits video. Now, granted, you know, maybe if I'm a kid, uh, a teenager in, in middle school, I don't have an iPhone uh, if, if my family's living paycheck to paycheck. Maybe I've got an Android phone that doesn't have all the same software built in, but you still got a camera. It still shoots video. There are some editing tools online. I would think we would be seeing more stories, rich stories, different storytellers bubbling to the top. Is it just a matter of time? Are we going to see more of that? Or do we need to invest in teaching all of our communities how to tell their stories? It's a tough question. Uh, here's, here's my attempt at answering it. Mm-hmm. Um, and first, I'll throw a couple of facts at you that I think limit the ideal world of a globally connected ecosystem where we're all sharing the more important, more moving stories. Right. First of all, um, <clears throat> stories reflect our concerns socially, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, and you don't always control. Uh, th- and that's number one. Number two, there's been this explosion of, of content, as you know, globally. Mm-hmm. Four, depending on the research, to 10 times in the last 10 years per capita availability of content. That means each of us has four to 10 times the amount of content we had 10 years ago to consume. Right. Consumption patterns are up about 50% during that same period. Uh, But it doesn't match the four to a thousand percent increase. Because the interesting thing that has happened is the yield curve on viewership is actually tighter, meaning we still only consume about five storylines at a time. Mm -hmm. So just like iTunes was, because it's not that popular anymore, you have all this proliferation. Just because there's 43 million tracks, you aren't listening. You aren't listening to 10 times the amount of songs anymore. Right. It used to be you'd go to Blockbuster and you'd look at the new releases, and then you had the rest of the store, and you could kind of walk around and choose a genre. Now, you've got pretty much everything at your disposal, if you're willing to pay. So we used to think, taking this example, 
that if we just digitize, I was one of these advocates in the 90s, digitize, we won't be forced to listen to this horrible music that the record labels are li- making me listen to. Nothing against Madonna or something, but I grew up with Madonna, so let's choose her. Let's say you didn't like Madonna. A lot of people love Madonna. Katy Perry. Katy Perry, okay, whatever it is. <laughs> right. You might have thought, hey, we have to listen to this. I know there's great music. If I could just digitize it and make it available and hear it at a low cost, I would be able to listen to the things I really want to listen to, those esoteric titles that we can't get otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so as we digitize, we thought the yield curve would flatten. But actually, the reverse has happened. There's so much choice. Humans need natural filters, branded filters or crowd filters. And so as you just pointed out, there's two, 43 million. Just tell me what the top 10 hip-hop songs are. Just tell me the top country on and because humans also, the other piece of research is that there are about five storylines you can so follow. So now we're just time. going to the new releases and bestsellers and not even paying attention to the rest of the Exactly. Story. And, and so socially it has to matter for us to follow these storylines. The Trump show today, the NBA finals, UEFA Cup, there has to be enough social importance for these stories to live and breathe and find the day of light. There's always somebody for a story. But there's many stories. Look at scripted series. Scripted series 10 years ago, once you went to a scripted series, about 92% of the time it would go full term. Now that's less than 50%. Hmm. And that's because there's just too many choices. And so the economic reality of that statement is dramatic for a media company. Why does Netflix has huge advantage? Because their cost of distribution is so low that they don't have a pilot, no pilot decision. Once they give a go on a project, they don't do a pilot. They do 10 or 20 shows yeah. then yeah. and go direct. It doesn't mean their success rate is higher. It just means they can go full term because their costs are so much lower. You started this conversation with podcasts. That's a good example. So what does that mean to my friend Bob Backus at Viacom? What does it mean to Jeff Miller at, at Disney? What does it mean to Fox and all the rest? Mm-hmm. It means that wrenching sound you hear is the sound of this media company's trying to profitably transition to the new reality, and it's very difficult. Yeah, I mean, I can attest to that. <coughs> Part of NBC Universal. we're trying to figure it out. Uh, NBC is a very big customer of ours. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to use NBC, not, not because you're with NBC. I had forgotten this is NBC, but I shouldn't have. It is indeed. NBC Sports, Dave Mazza, uh-huh. you know, they go down to Olympics in Rio and reduce their foot, physical footprint from the London Olympics by 20, 25%. They create 10 times the amount of story as of the uh, real, I mean, the London Olympics with a lot less people. They have remote access via the cloud to all these uh, storylines without spending the money. And they have a bunch of new digital channels that attracts about 100 million net new viewers. Plus, they get about 16% increase on Xfinity, mm-hmm. making it a profitable you know, event overall. The interesting thing about this is this is exactly what everybody's trying to do. How do we, how do we um, manage the decline of the broadcast viewership and ad conversion rate, participate in the new digital area, and still make money? And it's not easy. And I think I look at the Rio Olympics and NBC Sports as a beacon for people. I often point to this story. Like, this is the tools you need. You need to be able to invest in all, but you need to have enough of a platform so that you can manage it. Otherwise, you have the Netflixes of the world who don't have to manage that kind of transition that are going to make it very difficult for you. It's not just Netflix. Tencent, Ali, these guys are getting in content in a huge way and they control digital distribution. It's changing rapidly. To close things off, one prediction that you have for the next five years as far as what's going to happen with the storytellers 
dilemma. And then one habit or practice that you have that you think has been instrumental to your success? Uh, on the industry side, we cannot sustain the big loser in this digitization, which is the artist. Artists are the big losers. Content creators are the big losers. Hmm. If you look at the last 10 years, let's say music, for example, music revenues has finally eclipsed what it was in 1999, okay, when I sold my company in the, just on the eve. I actually went public that year, sold next year. Took, since 1999, a big decline in music finally clawed its way back up to about $7 billion to recapture that amount. So what happened in this big digitization? If you're a distributor connecting to the audience, your revenues and profits are up around 300% since 1999. If you're connecting the artist to that distributor, you're about flat. Took you a long time to crawl your way back up and get back even. Artist income on average is down 40%. Yeah. And the concentration of artist income is, the yield curve is much tighter. 1% makes in music, I'm using music example, but it's the same as true at some degree at all. About 60% of total income, mostly coming from um, live events. Once you get popular, you make it up on live events. So that's not a sustainable model. And the risk is that the best artists are going to be forced to work for places like Avid instead of doing what they love to do and what we want to hear them do. Right. That's unsustainable. That's got to change. What's my one pr prediction? I think you're going to see some surprisingly large mergers out of what's happening here. AOL Time Warner didn't work. I consider it a failure mm -hmm. economically. Oh, yeah. But the model of having great content and low-cost distribution, I think, was the right idea, just premature. So yeah. what does that Comcast, do? Comcast, NBC would agree with you. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> so what does that mean for Disney plus Google or Viacom plus Amazon? Mm -hmm. uh, I think this is what's going to happen long term. It has to happen um, because the transition is going to be so difficult for some of these folks. You're going to have to focus on what you do best. Gone are the days where you're, you can do the whole media value chain, which mm -hmm. is what most of my clients do today. I have to tell you, my clients, because we deal with the best in the world, have no intention of losing. They're very aggressively, including NBC, including Global, including Al Jazeera, including Disney, including all these guys, even CCTV and BBC, who are mostly public funded. They're all aggressively trying to transition because they intend to win. Mm. But I think it's going to be a challenging time. It's also a renaissance. It's a fantastic time to be in media because of the explosion, because you can reach more people. But it's a complicated time economically. And that is the storyteller's dilemma and my big prediction there. In terms of... Personally, you know, I, I think I mentioned, you know, some of the some of the guideposts for me. Um, you know, people ask me because. So what do you do now? Are there things you do now? A time you wake up in the morning, a, a preparation for meetings, a way of uh, pulling a team together that you think is a uniquely valuable insight you could share. I guess the one thing you know, people ask me a lot of times. I, I invest in in uh, sports and media e-commerce and, and um, banking. Mm -hmm. And people will say, how do you, how do you manage a different, the different industries? Right. And I tell them, I really only do one thing. I try and connect humans through my best tool, which is technology. And what happens for me is your life becomes really uh, simple when, you dry, when, you're, when you're achievement oriented. You start to give up things. You give up golf, you give up, you give up almost everything. For me, it's my family trying to stay fit, and this thing I love to do, which is create technology. And I also find the more authentic you are, 
the more people are willing to follow what you do. It's, it's a more of an inspiration than anything I learned in graduate school about trying to inspire people. The best thing I can do is not show up at evening events to influence somebody or take people to lunch or go play golf with them. It's just be authentic about what you do. And then the other attributes, you know, be a student of the thing you care about, you know, work hard, all those regular things that people always wish there was some secret around. I mean, that's the thing when I was just talking to a university and they, want, they almost eagerly, what's the secret? Like, you know, what's the go straight to go or whatever? There is none. You have to work very hard. You have to be very committed. You have to sacrifice a lot. And if you care about the thing you're doing, you'll probably be successful because that was my, I didn't do anything special. And you, you heard about my upbringing. I highly doubt my upbringing was uh, that there's not a lot of Lewis Hernandez's juniors that have as much or more capability than I did. They grew up in a very similar, you know, uh, a suburban town, just like your kids are doing. Right. Can, you can, can look be, through the yearbook and, and point at any one of them. Exactly. Right? Yeah. All right, Lewis, thanks. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. My thanks to Lewis Hernandez Jr. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, fortknox.com slash YouTube. Follow me on Facebook and Twitter at John Fort. You'll see video from these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X, or go to Facebook and search for John Fort, and you know what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. Again, that's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.